Welcome to the You Collective podcast. You Collective is open platform democratizing the voice of individuals with achievement and impact, and providing a window into these pathmakers and their evolving journey. Today we have Alex King with us. We're so excited to have you here, Alex. Hi, it's nice to be here. Tell us what you do and what your path so far is. Uh, sure. So I'm、uh, an assistant professor. Of philosophy at the University of Buffalo, so also known as SUNY Buffalo,、um, and I guess my path was that I started out、um, like I grew up in rural Michigan、um, and went to some like regular rural Michigan public school for you know K twelve, and then I went to University of Chicago. Um, for college, got my bachelor's there, and then I went to Brown for graduate school.、Uh, got my PhD, and then straight out of my PhD, I started this job, which I've been at now for five years. So you're a philosopher. I am a philosopher. Yes, I usually when people <laughs> when like I'm on an airplane or something, and people ask me what I do, I usually say I'm a professor rather than saying I'm a philosopher, just not because it's. More accurate, but because、um, people usually have like sort of annoying follow up questions to that, like "What's your <laughs> philosophy?" or like "Oh, that's so deep, I couldn't understand that." Or you know, well, let's get、that. into some of those questions.、Um, <laughs> well, in the age of technology and social media and what we read every day, we actually don't talk to or see many philosophers. So, tell us what. What do you do as a philosopher who also teaches other students about philosophy and different things、uh, under philosophy? So yeah, I mean the basically、um, what I do is a mix of like my own research and teaching, and then some you know sort of general service work, which is like you know I have to serve on. Department committees, university committees. I have to advise students. I have to, you know, help do graduate admissions or like, I don't know, the like stuff like that, sort of university things.、Um, but yeah, the majority of my job is、um, it's almost like a work from home kind of job where I do a lot of like reading and writing. That's what. Constitutes my research.、Um, I publish articles and books,、um, and that's so that's sort of the research side of things. And then、um, I teach two classes every semester.、Uh, I teach undergraduates about ethics and philosophy of art. Those are the sort of main things that I do.、Um, yeah, so I mean, a sort of like regular schedule for me. You know, lots of people think that professors or teachers.、Um, Have summers off. Really, for me, breaks from teaching mean、um, time to do my research. And what are some of the research topics that、uh, that you're you're working on these days, or have been for a while? So the cup, I guess, there are a couple of things that are my main focus. One is the relationship that、um, our moral obligations have. To like our abilities, so what are the limits of what we can do, 
like, like in the sort of literal sense, like what can we physically do or like, what can we psychologically bring ourselves to do? Um, and then how does that sort of stuff, how do our abilities and like lack thereof relate to what morality demands of us? So for example, uh, if I am standing at the side of a lake and I see someone drowning, um, it seems like I should save them, but what if I can't swim? Um, then should I still save them? Uh, what if it's, you know, what if I'm babysitting? Does that make a difference to whether or not I should save them? If it's like a child that I've promised someone that I'm going to take care of, right? So you can sort of vary the different, um, the sort of different considerations in these kinds of cases and try to think about like, what exactly does morality demand of us. And, you know, you can sort of, I'm talking about it in terms of morality because I work in ethics, but you could also think of it in terms of like, what are our legal obligations? What are we legally responsible for? Or, you know, what are we responsible for to ourselves and things like that? Very interesting. So how do you teach students to develop the mental muscles to resolve that question, for example? <laughs> very um <laughs> carefully <laughs> no i mean it's it's hard so yes yeah it is very of, hard it's <laughs> a very obvious question that you just raised but yeah. i don't think all of us think about this question intentionally but if someone is in this situation how would that person act i mean it, it is highly relevant even though it's a philosophical question uh, yeah, in, in this sense. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So one of the things, I mean, I try to do what lots, I mean, most philosophy professors, what we're trying to do is like give students the sort of basic tools to think through these kinds of questions. So um, for example, one thing that's very difficult to get students to um sort of see is that there's a difference, for example, between like, what can we actually in the real world expect people to do versus what should we do? So lots of times I'll, you know, I teach a lot of ethics courses and a lot of times we'll be talking about like, well, you know, what should you do? For example, in like the very famous trolley case, so there's like a trolley, um, a train, it's called a trolley because I think the person who came up with it was British or like old timey or something. Um, basically, there's a train and there's a forking path and you're standing in a switch and you can flip the switch or not to make it go on one track or the other. So the track it's currently going towards has like five people tied to it and the train is going to hit those five people and kill them. And you are standing at the switch and you can switch, you can flip the switch to go on the other track. And the other track has only one person. And the question is, should you flip the switch? And so there's, again, a lot of different variables in these cases. Um, but you can change it, for example, so that the one person, you know, lots of students are like, well, you should flip it because, mm -hmm. you know, five lives are worth more than one life. Um, you know, it's a hard decision, but that's, basically bottom line what you should do and if you change it so that the the one person is like 
you know, a loved one or a best friend or something, then they're much less apt to want to switch it or to, they're like more cautious about even saying that you should switch it. Uh, And they're like, well, look, nobody would ever do that. First of all, not clear that that's true. But even if it were true that nobody would do it, this, the question that I'm interested in as an ethicist and a philosopher. And I think that we as philosophers are trying to get students to see and think about more critically is like whether we should do it, even if, you know, nobody is going to do that. Even if we make that assumption, it seems like still we're falling short in some way. If you think that if it's just like some random person, you should switch it. But like you don't, you fail to always when it's somebody very close to you. It seems like you're falling short in some way or you're like letting your emotions get the better of you or whatever. And it's a complicated question how our emotions relate to what we should do and things like that, our moral character. But like thinking through these kinds of um, what are called thought experiments is a way of trying to sort of test the waters and like get students to think about these cases uh, and think through their assumptions and sort of think more carefully about these philosophical issues. I should take your class, Alex. Um, <laughs> but let's let's ask you this question. Um, so you teach ethics to students at, uh, um, at your university. Yeah. Should we have ethics course similar to the one that you teach uh, at as a required course at undergrad level and also in high school? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think that it would be great to have some course like this as a required course at the undergraduate level. Um, So I know actually that there are a lot of schools, particularly religious schools, like Catholic schools or Christian schools, very often they will have a required uh, sort of philosophy requirement. Some of them even have an ethics requirement specifically. And increasingly actually, um, like, business schools, engineering schools, nursing schools, um, and associated programs. Like if you just want to major in those things, or if you want to go to a professional school, sometimes they'll partner with the philosophy department in their institution. Um, and at least strongly recommend, and in some cases even require their students to take like a business ethics class, for example, or an engineering ethics or bioethics or something like that. Um, so I think that there's increasing, acknowledgement Mm -hmm. that this is an important thing that we need to be talking about. Um, And there's in, in sort of philosophical circles, um, people are trying to think about or make moves toward teaching this stuff in high school. So there are like ethics bowls and um, like people, people even teaching, um, doing outreach to elementary schools and teaching like very basic philosophical and like ethical concepts to elementary school students. Um, it's a really interesting time, I think, to be a philosopher. It is. Um, and you just reminded me, for example, in technology and you, you see a lot of the developments in autonomous cars and, uh, if autonomous car, hits an individual, uh, as we have seen in some of these experiments, uh, layman's questions uh, would be, is it the car's fault? Is it, you know, the engineer's fault? Is it the person's fault? Um, and where do you uh, actually test 
the the technology to to make sure it works well. But just hearing what you're saying, there is a whole level of discussion that could be had around um, you know ethics uh, and artificial intelligence specific to this uh, applications. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, specifically, you know, if you think about autonomous cars, there's been some discussion I'm, I know about basically, so I, you know, ta- told you about the trolley problems before, um, like the, basically that exact kind of case is one that people are already thinking about in the context of autonomous vehicles right? Because you just get cases where it's like, you know, the car, there are going to be cases sometimes where like the car, so to speak, has to make a decision between like protecting the person or people inside the car versus protecting somebody or some set of people outside the car. And then you just get a very similar sort of case where it's like, well, who's worth more, quote unquote, you know, or like, is, you know, is the car sort of duty bound to protect the people inside of it rather than the people outside of it or, you know, and like capitalism and the like financial incentives come into this, but right. you sort of want to keep the ethical stuff in perspective. So there's a lot of like, like you said, with autonomous vehicles, but also sort of more generally with artificial intelligence and stuff like that, it gets um, pretty pretty serious I think in terms of these like very pertinent ethical questions and um it's interesting too that some people some tech companies are now taking more seriously to the idea that they should have like a trained ethicist on hire or on call or like consulting with them so that they can like be more sensitive to these issues yeah, exactly. Um, a lot of complex questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's actually uh, talk about how you got here. Um, so I know that you studied math undergrad. Yeah. Uh, did you always know that you wanted to be a philosopher? What drew you to this interest? And uh, you're very accomplished in what you're you're doing. Uh, I think you told me once that you're one of the youngest professors, uh, which is incredible. <laughs> uh, did you know you want to do this? How did you get here? And yeah. uh, I guess what advice you would give to folks who uh, are really interested in this topic, but they never thought they could be a philosopher. Sure. In yeah. 2019. So- <laughs> oh my God, 2019. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, um, so I'll say just a little bit about my own story. Um I, so I didn't always know that I wanted to be a philosopher. Um, although I knew, I knew earlier than many people who become philosophers, as it turns out now that I know a bunch of philosophers. Um, so as I said, I went to some, like, I went to a pretty bad, um, public school growing up and there wasn't, there weren't like a lot of opportunities set in place for me to succeed or like excel. So I had to like look outside of my school for opportunities. So when I was in high school, I um, enrolled in like local community college classes. um, And I did some math, I did a little bit, I started doing a little bit of philosophy then. Um, I think I got interested in philosophy originally, because uh, like many people, 
I think, get interested in, who get interested in philosophy, I used to be religious. And then when I started questioning my religion, I, it just sort of makes you ask a lot of philosophical questions like, what's the meaning of life if there's not somebody out there giving it meaning? What do, you know, what's my place? Is there, you know, any moral truth out there? Is there any, you know, what's real and what's not? It sort of begs you to ask these philosophical questions. Um, and so that's sort of how I got interested in philosophy in the first place. Uh, originally when I went to college, I thought I was going to do physics and math. Um, and that's what I talked about in like my interview and stuff. Uh, and eventually when I got to college, once I started, I sort of realized that I was more interested in philosophy. So I ended up majoring in philosophy and minoring in math. Um, a lot of people think that that sounds like sort of a funny combination, um, except for philosophers. If you say that to a philosopher, they're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. But if you say it to other people, they're like, huh, that's a funny, that's a funny connection. <laughs> um, because most philosophers nowadays are, it's like highly rigorous and like very logical and structured arguments and stuff like that, that are prized in contemporary philosophy. So essentially like, doing math gives you the background of this like highly rigorous, highly logical, structured argumentation. Um, and this sort of like exceptionally clear way of laying things out with like axioms and rules of inference and things like that, that you can then work from. Um, so, I mean, that's, I guess that's sort of the trajectory for me. Um, and then I just kept like plugging away at it. <laughs> and eventually I got into graduate school and eventually I got this job. Um, and I mean, as for advice for other people who are interested in philosophy, there's so many resources now. I mean, if you, you know, maybe you're interested in philosophy, but you don't want to like go to all the trouble of becoming a professor, becoming a philosopher, that's fine. Um, there's, there's so much stuff out there now that um, is like great and sort of aimed at um, a like generally curious public audience. So I have a philosophy of art blog, for example, um, it's called Aesthetics for Birds, which does this kind of thing. There are lots of blogs like this, but there are also tons of great podcasts um, I can give you some links and stuff like that. Um, but if you, I mean, if you just go to like any sort of podcast uh, app and look up philosophy, there's just tons and tons of great resources. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, and there's like books and things like that. If you get really interested in particular topics and they'll give you further recommendations and things. Um, but in general, I think that the, the biggest thing is, like, for me personally, um, like, coming from a, like, underprivileged background, it's like, I'm a woman basically working in a very, very heavily male-dominated field. Um, and it sucks sometimes, but, like, I'm, I love doing what I do, and I'm passionate about it, and I have 
people, I have a support network that when things get really bad, as they sometimes do, I can reach out to my support network. Um, you know, I can talk to people if I'm feeling like imposter syndrome. I can talk to people if I'm just feeling really down or really overwhelmed with the amount of work that I have to do or things like that. Um, and that's been really important for me in the past decade that I've been really trying to make this happen. That's awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. And you have a book coming out. I do have a book coming out. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not quite aimed at a public audience, but, um, yeah, it's on it's the about sort ethics. Of stuff that I was talking yeah. about. Yep. It's on the, you know, odd implies can this relationship of our obligations to our abilities. It's called what we ought and what we can. Um, and it should be published. I think they said in April sometime. So That's great. Yeah. Well, well, we uh, we look forward to that. And uh, Alex, thank you so much for sharing your experience. And we're really proud of you. And uh, yeah. thanks for uh, sharing your experience <laughs> here on You Collective. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks.